You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are in the book of Revelation. If you were with us last week, that was our first study in the book of Revelation. I'm very excited to take you all on this journey through this book. Let me just commit this time to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll start our study. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, now as we look into your wonderful word, Lord. We pray that you would just open our eyes to see all the wonders, the truth, and the glory within it. And as we focus our hearts and minds on Jesus Christ, we pray that he would be preeminent in our lives. In Jesus' name, for his sake, we pray. Amen. So we started the book of Revelation. As we talked about last week, Revelation is an oft-neglected book in the church. Many people shy away from it because of the the, uh, complicated nature of some of the text in it. They don't quite know where it fits or what to do with it. You remember I said Martin Luther didn't like the book of Revelation. John Calvin didn't like the book of Revelation. It's the only book he didn't write a commentary on. And we find this attitude today. The Anglican liturgy takes you through the entire Bible in a year except the book of Revelation. So it's a neglected book, which is such a shame. As we saw last week, the main theme of the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ. You are missing out on learning more about our wonderful Saviour if we do not study this book. And today we're not going to study huge amounts of it because there's just so much in the few verses that we are going to look at. Like I said... It goes into the Old Testament. Uh, Studying Revelation will make you a better theologian. Uh, If you don't know you're a theologian, you are if you're a Christian. If you think about God, you are engaged in theology, and this book will help you do that. It will also help focus your hearts and your minds on the coming king in amidst all that is going on in the world. So let's just read the first three verses. This is what we looked at last time, just to get the context of where we're going. So it starts like this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And you remember, we said that that word, revelation, is in Greek is the word where we get the term apocalypse from. Apocalypsis is the word in Greek. And what this means is not some end-of-the-world catastrophe, as I know that's often what it's associated with. Its literal meaning is an unveiling, to make something clear, to reveal something. And the book of Revelation is unveiling the person of Jesus Christ as the coming, conquering king of this world. That is its sole purpose and that is why we're looking at this book it reveals the glory and the majesty of this king like no other book and for that fact alone it's worthy of all of our time however apocalypse has a different idea in common culture doesn't it if you follow the news you'll notice almost daily there is apocalyptic scaremongering going on now these are just a few from what i found during this week studying covid is a warning that much worse lies in store The alarm is raised ahead of the biggest climate report in 2013, so they're linking together COVID there with climate change. And if you read the article, you'll remember the 17 global initiatives of the United Nations that I mentioned to you last week. This is actually referring to one of those global initiatives and how they can institute it. Again, it's really just a fear fear tactic to manipulate people. 
if you listen to them, they have ways to make you change your ways, is kind of the attitude that's going on behind the, these articles. Fear and manipulation are very powerful tools. And this is why in the Bible, literally hundreds, hundreds of times, it tells you, do not fear. Do not be afraid. If you know Jesus Christ, you truly do not need to fear. That doesn't mean you're ignorant of things in the world or that you act without taking due caution, but it means you, you do not fear in the larger sense of the term. Now, for those of you that didn't know, the independent newspaper actually has an apocalypse section. Did you know that? Who knew? I was, that, was, that, was, that was honestly quite, la quite laughable to me. Now, of course, all of the articles in the apocalypse section are pretty much articles relating to the 17 global initiatives of the United Nations. It's either climate change, global warming, a coming pandemic, all the, the typical sorts of things. And it's quite interesting to actually read through. It really tells you what people are interested in and people are searching for at the moment. But there you go. So if you want to bookmark that, you will get... Lots of information, pretty much all to do with the same thing. None of it will be particularly accurate, but that is where we are. However, guys, if you're worried what is going to happen in the apocalypse, I also found this. I don't know if you see this article this week. It was actually, actually turned up on more news sources than I actually thought it would. A time traveller, and he is a TikToker, so he has a, he has a, a channel on TikTok where he, he, he films his time travels. And he came back, and he came back from the apocalypse, and he had a printed photo of L.A. underwater at the time. And it was actually literally an old-fashioned printed photo from the... Anyway, it was hilarious. But I actually found this article quite, coming up quite a lot, and he he's actually has millions of followers on TikTok who obviously listen to him, whether they're finding him as a source of amusement or actually a source of news, was I'm not entirely sure, probably both for some people. But so there we go. That's, that's the apocalypse that you see in the world. However, let's talk about it seriously. We are looking at the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a message to the world from God, who is the creator of the world. He is the only one who knows the future because he is the one who has planned it. It is all moving according to his purpose and his revealed will. And if you want to know the book of Revelation, the Bible as a whole, but the book of Revelation in particular is where you need to study. So I would say make sure you've got your Bible app bookmarked before you have the independent apocalypse section bookmarked and you'll be able to, you'll do okay just with doing that. So let's jump in. We're going to do four verses today. Let's jump into verse four, Revelation chapter one, verse four. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So here we see that the introduction to this letter, uh, this book, it is actually a letter. It's like an epistle, actually. So you could, you could almost say this is an epistle from Jesus Christ, and it's probably the most neglected epistle, if we could say it like that then. It is a letter, and you find the customary greetings uh, in the ancient world. It was customary to put first the author and then the, the recipients of the letter right at the beginning. We sign our name at the end of a letter, don't we, today? In the ancient world, they would put it in the first sentence, so you immediately know. So that's what you see going on here. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, this is John. Remember, we talked last week. This is the beloved apostle the one who rested his head on the Lord's uh, chest during that Passover meal. He is the only surviving apostle at the time of this writing, and he is exiled on a little island off the coast of uh, Turkey. 
called Patmos at this time, the seven churches in Asia. Asia is Asia Minor, the province was what we would class as modern-day Turkey today. You can see there, they are the churches, and you, if you can see that at all, you can just about see Patmos just slightly off the coast there. That is where John is writing. Patmos was an exile colony that they would have at this time, separated, and John was in trouble with the Roman emperor, and he got sent there, basically, to stop him preaching, most people assume. This is where we are. So... Why these seven churches, a lot of people asked, because we know there were other prominent churches within that region, the Church of Colossians, the Colossi, so the, the one we have a whole book to the church in Colossae that is in that area there. So why was that church not picked? You would assume as a major church it would get picked. Now, a lot of people speculate on this. There's a very practical reason. Uh, these churches are actually following directly along a trade route, so it would have meant that there was very good circulation for this letter after people read it it would just get taken around to all the churches in between the main ones that we see here but I believe also they were selected because in some way they represent the entire church at large and what I mean by that is they seem to present strengths and weaknesses that can be found in all the churches so in the next two or three chapters of Revelation you're going to see specific letters addressed to each one of these churches where Jesus himself will identify a strength and a weakness, an encouragement, a promise, or a rebuke to different people in the churches. And in some way, as you read through these messages to the churches, you'll probably realize you get all of these in every church, and that's why it, it, these have been selected, because they represent every church at large. The number seven, we may as well deal with this now, because in the book of Revelation, we are going to encounter the number seven a lot. If you are a student of the Bible, and of Revelation in particular, you have probably noticed that the number seven is a frequent number that pops up in the Bible. It represents completeness, and it represents perfection. Some people say that it represents divinity. I don't go that far. It, it, to me, it represents completeness. And, and why did the Jewish people think of it like that? It goes right back to the book of Genesis. Do you remember in the book of Genesis, creation week, God created in six days and on seventh he rested. So we have that seven-day creation week. Now ask yourself, why do we have a seven-day week? It's a good question to ask yourself. You see, the original pattern for the week was set right here in Genesis. Different cultures and different nations have uh, toyed with 10-day weeks and at uh, different times, but generally it's back to a seven-day week. And this, I believe, comes right back from the book of Genesis. As the earth was God's habitation for mankind, it is the ultimate prototype of seven days representing completeness. God saw what he had created and it was good and he rested. That's where it comes from. Now, why else would we have a seven-day week? It's not related to any astronomical observations like a day or a month or a year is. It's just simply because God specified it. So immediately, with this number seven, we are introduced to the concept that we are dealing with a book, a message that comes from the very one who created the universe, who ordered its foundations. He is the one that spoke it into existence by the word of his power. And we are now hearing that word speak to us through the book of Revelation. And that in itself, for me, is another reason why we at least need to read this book, let alone study it for ourselves. And that's what we're going to do for the next few months. Seven shows up many times throughout the Bible. You remember the story of Jericho? Seven priests carrying seven trumpets, marching for seven days. On the seventh day, they were to march seven extra times, and they would blow the trumpets seven times, and the walls of Jericho fell down. 
Remember Jesus in the Gospel of John, he spoke seven I am statements. I am the door, I am the bread of life, on and on. Hanging on the cross, he spoke seven statements. You'll see it all throughout the Bible. In the book of Revelation alone, seven churches, seven spirits, seven lampstands, seven stars, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven peals of thunder. The dragon has seven heads, seven diadems, seven plagues, seven bowls of wrath, seven mountains, seven kings. And that's just a small selection of the sevens in Revelation. So you see this number is key to this book. And I find this an interesting emphasis. If seven symbolizes completeness, a finished action, it is no surprise that we see this number throughout the book of Revelation because what does Revelation deal with? The final chapter of earth history. The completing of earth's history and moving into the new era of history, the kingdom age. And not only that, the book of Revelation, as a book of the New Testament, it completed what we call the canon of Scripture. It was the last book of the Bible to be written, and it is the bookend of the Bible, Genesis, Revelation. So it is in many ways, quite literally, the completion of the canon. Now, when we think about that, if you read the, the when we get there, it'll be a while, so I'll read it to you now. In the very final chapter of Revelation, you have this warning. It says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. What it's basically saying is, after Revelation was finished, there are no more books to come. There is no more revelation in the sense of written scripture. And this is very instructive towards us. And I want to just take a small excursion now to emphasize this point for you. Because most of the religions that you will encounter, particularly in the Western world, ones that have millions of adherents, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, uh, Islam, they all are based upon a book that came through divine revelation, apparently, after the book of Revelation. Yet, by very nature of the way Jesus wrote this book, he said, this is it. Revelation completes it. If anything comes afterwards, you can know that it is not from me, and thus it is not true. And whilst people object to having such a definite statement like that, that is quite literally what the king of the universe has said. You see, people don't like the exclusive nature of religious claims, particularly ones that exclude other people or say that someone else might be wrong. I would say that's partly a sort of symptom of our culture. We've drifted from the real understanding of what truth actually is. If you think about it, truth, by its very definition, is exclusive, i.e. it has to exclude that which is false. Okay, that is, these, you cannot simplify it any more than that. Truth by its nature is exclusive, therefore it must simplify what is false. And therefore, when someone comes along like Jesus Christ, who is called the God of truth, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it is he who makes this claim. It's not us in, our, in a, any sort of arrogance or wisdom that we might have saying these other religions are wrong. We are resting on the authority of what Jesus has said there. This is why in the first chapter of Revelation, it spends so long, I believe, making sure that you get a vision of who this coming king is. He is the source of it. He is the authority for it. It does not rest in us. It rests alone in the word of God. He is the one who actually is truth. This is his last word. And that means for me that other religions that come after claiming to have another book, often written by someone, a man, are... I would say false. And we have to say that because that's how truth works. 
You cannot have two contradictory, conflicting truths that say completely different things and both be true. Truth does not allow that to be the case. And that affronts some people in our culture because we have a false understanding of truth, but that is the situation. When Islam appeared, 700 years after Christianity first appeared, Muhammad was in a cave and he had his visions. They were recorded and they became the Quran, which is a superseding of the New Testament. If you've ever read the Quran, you'll know that it plays on the fact that it is the final revelation. Therefore, in its very inspiration, it is going against what Jesus said in Revelation. The Book of Mormon. If you've ever seen a Mormon, we have quite a few in Hastings, quite often telling you about the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith, in the 19th century, he translated the golden plates in heaven, apparently. Well, they found them in New York. They came from heaven, and that was what produced the Book of Mormon which is, as they call it, another testament. Again, just going in complete contradiction to what Jesus said. And therefore, you must always be suspect of these things. Same with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Charles Taylor's Russell, in, in well, the end of the 19th century, founded the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society on the uh, assumption that he had been shown the error of the ways of the church and his organisation and body were now the sole... Uh, arbiters of truth for the world. They were in fact called my servants and my witnesses. That's where they get their name from. And thus they were now speaking truth on behalf of Jehovah. And they wrote their studies in the scriptures book and they ended up producing their own translation of the Bible. If you're a student of the Bible, you should know immediately Jesus disqualified that. And he did it right back in the first century. So why are we surprised by this? It's The only surprising thing is how so many people believe that that is the situation. However, we need to go with the words of Jesus over the words of man. Now, that's just by way of introduction. Let's get back to Revelation chapter 1 and look at that verse 4 again there. So it says, grace to you and peace. So John to the seven churches in Asia, grace to you and peace. That is, again, a very typical greeting that you will find in many ancient letters from this period, not just Bible letters, grace and peace. Um, a lot of people make a fact that this is probably the, the apostle playing on the fact that peace was the Hebrew greeting, grace was the way that Greek, Greeks started their letters, combining them grace and peace. We don't know that, it just sounds good, but that's, that's what most people say. But then look at this next phrase. And we actually just sung this line in the last hymn, didn't we? That was a great choice. For him who is and who was and who is to come. So this is a very, we call this the Trinitarian benediction. And we're going to spend most of our time looking at these next couple of verses. The Trinitarian benediction. So that is the, the opening of this letter, and it's attributing the letter to the Trinity. John here gives a greeting to these seven churches in the name of God the Father. This expression, who is, who was, and who is to come, it's a very hard translation in the Greek. It is doing its best to translate the name of God in the Old Testament. And this is where it alludes. Remember I said that Revelation is going to constantly take you back into the Old Testament. Almost every verse of Revelation is a reference to something in the Old Testament. That's why I said it's going to make you brilliant theologians. It'll just help you to understand the scriptures more. And as we get to the end of it, we'll see why. You remember the story, Moses and the burning bush. So we're in the book of Exodus now, the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus where he is being called to lead the people of Israel uh, out of Egypt. And we have this episode in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Then Moses said to God, Behold, 
I am going to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you to me. And that's the best that the translators could do in English. It is the holy name of God is translated as I am. It's those four letters there that you see in Hebrew. We call that the tetragrammaton. The nearest we could translate it in the Hebrew is from the verb hayah, which basically means I will be. It's speaking of essence in its most pure form. And what this is interesting to understand for us is that there is in fact a connection between the very name of God and the source of being itself, i.e. everything else derives being from him. He is the foundation and the source of all being. He just is. He, thus he requires, he has no beginning, he requires no cause. He is. He is I am. I will be. And that is why this expression, when you put it into Greek, him who, from him who is, who was, and who is to come. It's trying to convey to you the eternality of God, that he is eternal, he has no beginning, has no end, he encompasses all of these things. Now, I find this fascinating, because that phrase comes from the name, the translated name of God. If you were around in the 80s, you're probably familiar with a show called Cosmos, with a very famous astronomer called Carl Sagan. He was a big man at the moment. He was an atheist uh, astronomer. And he did a very popular TV show. It was recently, I think in like mid-2010 or 14, it was rebooted with a man called Neil deGrasse Tyson. And the director was a man called Seth MacFarlane of Family Guy fame. He actually produced it. Both of those two, again, are ardent atheists. And they came together and they rebooted the Cosmos show. Now, what was interesting is in the 80s, when Carl Sagan, in the, the credits to this show... He would say this phrase, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. Now that's a philosophical statement, it had nothing to do with the science of the show, but they kept this for the new show too, because it was such a popular tagline. Now I want you to read it. Look at your Bible in Revelation, from him who is and who was and who is to come. And now look what he's done here. The cosmos is all that is or ever was Whatever will be. Now, I find that fascinating. You see, it makes it very clear that the, the naturalistic philosophy of what Carl Sagan was offering, a godless universe, basically, was being offered to the people as a substitute or a surrogate for Christianity. Understand that. You see, that when you see these naturalistic views, atheism, they operate right, like religions. They have their creeds, they have their books, they have their scientific, so we could say churches, their institutions, they have their punishments for going against what they believe, all these sorts of things. This is the scientific establishment in many ways. It's not true science, it's often philosophy. This is what is going on here. It is a substitute for God. And notice, it's not only that, it's very direct. Carl Sagan knew what he was doing here when he put this in. And notice exactly what he does. He takes out for him referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he puts in the cosmos. So he changes God with the cosmos. Now, we might, you know, a lot of people think that's wonderful and they're very inspiring. The Apostle Paul said that people would be doing this in the first century. You know, he predicted this a long time ago. God is not surprised by this. In fact, I believe God laughs at this. And it says quite clearly in the Bible he laughs at this. Romans 1.25 
The Apostle Paul wrote this in the first century. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And then look, they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. I.e., they substituted something in the created order for God. That could not be a better explanation of what Carl Sagan did here when he took out the name of Jesus Christ and he put the cosmos in and he said that the cosmos is the eternal thing that, it, that has always existed and that is where we find being from. You see, this is why I believe God, it says, you know, God sits in the heavens and he laughs at people raging about him, sitting there arguing about whether God exists, yet at the same time using his holy name, the name that actually means I am the very nature of existence. You would not be here to argue about my existence if it was not for me, yet that's what we do and we think we're intelligent doing that. You see why it says God sits in the heavens and he laughs. And we're going to see what happens throughout the book of Revelation. Unfortunately, I'm not going to make light of it because it does get pretty serious as we move on through the book. But that is the book of Revelation. So he says, for him who is and who was and who is to come, and from, back in Revelation now, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from the seven spirits who are before his throne now remember the word seven again completeness it's not referring to seven individual spirits it's referring to the holy spirit i believe in all of his fullness but again this comes from the old testament this is just straight out the old testament here it's calling uh, on two different old testament texts one of them is isaiah 11 verse 2 where you find what's called the sevenfold spirit of god I've tried to highlight them for you on there. You probably can't see it too well. But it says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom, of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Those seven items there, that's where you get the term, the sevenfold spirit. So again, we see the association of seven with the Spirit of God. In another place in Zechariah, you see the, term, the sevenfold Spirit of God associated with what we would call a lampstand. And you're going to find that that's very key for the book of Revelation. I'll just read to you. Remember that famous passage where uh, Zechariah, he sees a vision of a seven-branched lampstand with seven things on the top. And he asks, what is this? And the Lord says to him, do you not know? And he says, no, I don't know. And then he says, this is the word of the Lord, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And he, refer, he, he says that this is a picture of the Holy Spirit. This is generally how it's pictured you might see the seven-branched menorah or lampstand or candlestick there with those seven different aspects of the Holy Spirit on it. You see, that's just from this one expression. You have to go back into the Old Testament and find out where these images are coming from, and that's how you study the book of Revelation. That's why it makes you uh, study the Bible so intently, because you have to do this almost for every verse, and that's why we're going to go very slowly uh, through the book of Revelation. We're going to try and do this as best we can so we have this. So far, we've had the Father, and we've also had the Son, uh, we've also had the Holy Spirit, and then who comes next? The Son, the third person of the Trinity. And this is what we find in verse 5, Revelation 1, verse 5. Let's read it. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. This is Jesus Christ. This is Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Remember, this is the one who the whole book is supposed to be revealing to us, and it begins right away, as we've already seen. And right now we get probably one of the most beautiful descriptions of Jesus Christ that we can. He first of all calls him the faithful witness. 
as I oppose all those who are false witnesses. He is the faithful, it's the same word that could be translated true there, as in he is the only one who can really be described in this way. He is the exact representation of the Father. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus Christ. That is the very reason he came to this earth, to testify to that truth, to who God is, because humanity needs God. Most people don't think of Jesus coming to this earth as being his mission to testify to truth, because we have this vague understanding of what truth is. But in John 18, when he was standing before the Roman curate Pilate, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus said, you say correctly, I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to truth. And then Pilate said those famous words, what is truth? I'd say that's a very good question that speaks to all of us still today. What is your response to the testimony of Jesus? Is he the faithful and true witness like he claims to be? If you believe that, praise the Lord. If you, like Pilate, are unwilling to maybe commit and you ask that question, well, what is truth? Then I would say to you the book of Revelation is something you need to read and you need to heed the messages of this book quite severely. Jesus came to reveal man. And he is the only one that can do it. This is why he called himself the way, the truth, and the life. This is him, only him. Not some organization in Brooklyn, New York. It is Jesus Christ. The word witness there is also the same word that we often translate martyr. We understand that concept. Now, in, in its true form, it's someone whose life is taken for a cause, not someone who takes their own life and others for a cause. That's the way it's been interpreted through the expressions of a, another major religion, but in its sense in this language here, it's someone who believes in something that they were willing to die for it, as in someone else killed them. They were a martyr. It speaks to the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus, who himself was faithful even unto death. He loved the world so much that he was willing to come, fulfill his father's mission, die for us, testify to the truth, even to the point if it cost him his own life. That's what this verse is meaning. So he was the faithful witness. It says he was the firstborn from the, from the dead. This is referring to his resurrection. He was the only one that defeated death. Yes, there were a few other people raised during the ministry of Jesus, but they died again. He was raised to a new life, to a new body, to the glorified Lord. It speaks of his position. And then it says, and he was the ruler of the kings of the earth. He was the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is a reference to Psalm 98, verse 27. It says, I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. You see, this is an acknowledgement of the supreme sovereign rule of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. You see, we know his kingdom ultimately awaits its arrival. This is what much of Revelation will be telling us. But there are leaders today who seek their own empires. There are those leaders, kings and governments who oppose Jesus there are those regimes around the world today who imprison and persecute the people of God. And that's happening a lot today, and that will increase across the world. There are those who prosper at the expense of others, those who steal, attack, destroy, those who are high and mighty and proud and lifted up, those who exalt themselves above all things, and they demand, in many ways, to be worshipped as gods. This is a history of human government. You look around the world, you'll always see this at some point coming to the front, and it always is nasty when it comes to the front. What this is saying is that at some point, there is going to be no more of that, because when Jesus comes, no one will do that anymore. 
He is ruler of the kings of the earth, and he will prove it. And we are going to study what happens when he comes back and does that in the book of Revelation. Do you remember in Philippians that we've just finished studying? Philippians chapter 2, it says that Jesus, for this reason God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. And who do you bow? You bow to a king, yes? You bow to a king. One day every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what we're seeing come to fruition in the book of Revelation. It says, in that day, he will be the only true king. No close seconds, no challenges, no emperors, no rivals, nothing. No one who can even stand in his presence as someone opposing him in that day. In Zechariah 9.9, it says, he will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. No one will be confused whether it's Allah, whether it's Muhammad, whether who the real prophet is, who the real king is. There will be no rivals, no challenges. In fact, the prophet Habakkuk says, for in that day, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is who it's referring to. Now, hopefully that's got your attention of why we need to study the book of Revelation. But the description goes on. It says, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Now, in light of that glorious picture of what I've just been talking about, about who Jesus Christ is, it's almost as if John now changes pace. And he says, even though that is who Jesus is, I need you to know that that same king loved you. And he says now, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. The king loves us and he has proved it. He has loved us, it says, with an everlasting love in the Bible. He loved them to the point of death. John tells us about this in one of his other epistles. In 1 John 4, he says this, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. As long as we can see the cross as long as we know that is a true fact of history, the love of God for you can never be questioned. God demonstrated that love as he hung on that cross, and he is the faithful and true witness. And notice it says he released us. My Bible says released us. Some of, some of you might have another word there, but I like released us because it implies that we were in captivity. Something was holding us in bondage. We were not free when we were slaves to sin. But when you come to know the Lord, he literally does release you. He sets you free. He gives you a new birth, as we call it, and you become a child of God with a new identity, a new citizenship, and ultimately a new future and a new destiny. He released us from our sins by his blood. That's a reference to the atonement. That's a reference to the cross. This is how he cleanses us, by washing us with the blood. Now, a lot of people, why blood? That sounds very a little bit archaic, a little bit sacrificial. The whole point is it's supposed to shock you. Life is in the blood. Do you remember in the book of Genesis, the book of Leviticus, it says life is in the blood. And Jesus, it says, literally poured out his life for us in our place as our substitute. So, of course, blood had to be involved in that. He died so that we may live. And then it says, and he has made us, I'm going to verse 6 now, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father. You see, Jesus not only pardoned us, cleansed us, released us, forgave us, he actually promotes us, if we could put it like that, to be kings. We are citizens in his kingdom. Through our adoption in Christ, we are in fact 
of royal blood, if we could say it like that. Now you think about this, what a privilege that we have, that he stoops down from the glories of heaven to the cross, but to right where we are now, to whatever we're doing to this little town in East Sussex, to Hastings, he stoops down, he saves us, and he raises us up to a position of kingly royal authority. There's nothing like that in the whole world. We are raised up to that position, and that is a sheer act of God's grace for us. But not only that, he makes us priests. To be a priest was to be a representative of God, someone who would take the word of God, the message of the kingdom, to people who do not know him. But also the priest was someone who would offer up sacrifices to God. This is why it talks about our service to the Lord as being a spiritual sacrifice. It's priestly language. And the whole point is that you have that purpose. You have these things to do while you were here on earth. You are a priest to the Lord. Therefore, our lives have meaning. It's a huge antidote to the meaninglessness of life that is often pushed on people through those philosophies like Carl Sagan that we mentioned. You have priestly duties to perform with the Lord. He has works for you to do. This is one of the things that we have. Now, this is the great Trinity, the great Trinitarian benediction, as, as they call it. We see the three members of the Godhead, the eternality of the Father, the Spirit of God, the faithful witness of his Son, his triumph in resurrection glory, his defeat of death, his great love for us, his cleansing of us from our sins, his washing away of our sins, our new identity that he has bestowed on us now as kings and priests. Now, what is the result when we think about what God has done for us like that? It can be nothing other than what John does now. He breaks out in praise. To him be the glory, the dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's nothing else that can be said when you think about what Christ has done for us. That should be the reaction of every single one of us as we study the book of Revelation. To him be the glory, the dominion forever and ever. There's no one else who has the glory the Lord does not share his glory with another. It is his. He is the only one who has that glory. And he will have dominion over everything that he created one day. He allows people to usurp it right now in this period. But he is rescuing his people from that. And one day when the king comes, all those usurpers will be gone. That is the story of the book of Revelation. Let's look at this last couple of verses now. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Here we now see a preview of the coming attractions of Revelation. In many ways, this one verse is a summary of the entire book of Revelation. Throughout the Old Testament, we have a promise of what's called the coming one. Right back in the book of Genesis, do you remember? There will be one who will stand on the head of the serpent who will defeat evil and do all these things. And that picture of the coming one is a promise that is developed throughout the entire Bible. Now, it's hard to decipher, particularly for them without the New Testament in the Old Testament. Sometimes this coming one was presented as a conquering king, as a ruler who would defeat his enemies. And yet sometimes this coming one was presented as someone who would be rejected, despised, forsaken, and ultimately someone who would be cut off for others. Now... A lot of people in the Jewish world didn't quite know how to reconcile these two pictures. Some of them said there were actually two different messiahs. But the key is there were not two different messiahs. There was one messiah who came twice. In the first time, it's the resurrection that is the key factor in this. That's why the resurrection is so central to our faith. The first time in his incarnation, he came to die for the sins of the world. He was that despised, that rejected one, that forsaken one, the one who bore the cross for us, who had the whips on his back, the one who sweated great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane for us. 
and he died and was ultimately buried and resurrection. However, that's all past. That's been done. Now all that remains is the second part of the coming one promises. And that is the promises of the coming king. He doesn't come in his incarnation now as a humble and lowly man who was just walking in his tunics around the shores of Galilee. He comes as a conquering, glorified, resurrected king. The picture is that he comes as a general riding on a white horse to take back his earth, to take back his kingdom. It's a glorious, powerful scene, and it should give you goosebumps as you contemplate that is what's going to happen. We'll see that at the end of the book of Revelation. He came in the first time in humiliation. He will return in exaltation. He came the first time to serve. When he comes back, he will be served. He came as a suffering servant. He will return as a conquering king. The challenge of the book of Revelation for us, it makes every person ask themselves, are you ready for the king to return? It says, behold, he is coming in the clouds. That's a reference again to an Old Testament passage in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, which is a passage about the king coming to take back his world. Listen to it. I'll read it to you. It's a very famous passage. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, if you want the reference. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there's your link, the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And listen, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. We've just heard all those words, haven't we, in Revelation. And then look, that all the peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The one who comes on the clouds is going to take dominion of an everlasting kingdom that will not pass away. It says every eye will see him in Revelation. This means it's going to be a visible event. Now, quite how that plays out or what that literally means, I'm not going to speculate on that. But what I, what I do believe it means is that this is a public manifestation of his glory. It is a supernatural event. I believe the book of Matthew actually explains this for us, Jesus' own words. In Matthew 24, he calls it the sign of the Son of Man. He says, and Matthew 24, verse 30, if you want the reference, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. The sign of the Son of Man is his Shekinah glory. It is his radiance, his glory. And it says, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That's basically the same words as Revelation. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the what? Coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. What Daniel records is the same as what Matthew records is the same as what Revelation is telling us about right now. This will be a display of his glory. In the incarnation, 2,000 years ago, when he walked on this earth, his glory was veiled. No one saw his glory. There's only one place that we see his glory, and that was in the transfiguration. Do you remember when he took his two disciples up onto the mountain, and it says he was transformed, transfigured, and his glory shone through, and it says it was so bright and radiant, it was like white wool. That's how they described it. And then they tried to say that the kingdom was starting, because they associated glory with his kingdom quite correctly, but it wasn't the time yet. That was his incarnation. But now, at the second coming, that is how he returns. He is in that form, that glorious Shekinah glory shining out from him. Every eye will see him, and it says two groups of people, if you look at the text, those who pierced him, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Now, this is a little technical. For time's sake, I'm not going to go into it now because we will get into this as we go through the book. Those who pierced him is a reference to the book of Zechariah. 
Okay, that's an Old Testament book, and it's a reference to the people of the Jewish nation. I'll read to you Zechariah 12. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, listen, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for, a, for an only son. It's referring to the Jewish nation who were alive at the time of the second coming, that they will have what we call the national, this is the national restoration of Israel. We will talk about this much more as we go through this book. That is the people who pierced him, that's your reference. And then it says, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. This is referring to another group of people we see in the book of Revelation called people who dwell on the earth, earth dwellers. These are Gentile nations that have rejected the Lord. At this moment, when the sign of the Son of Man, the glory of the Lord shines through, they come to the realization that they are wrong. That they have actually, it says in the book of Revelation, they are fighting against God. And this is when they realize that. And they weep and they mourn because they know that the time of their comeuppance is now. This is, they've had their day now. The Lord has let them have their time. He is coming. Do you remember when Paul is writing? He says that the day of salvation is now, as in literally now, today, from, from the cross, from the beginning of the church, until before the book of Revelation. That is the day of salvation. That is when the church is here taking the gospel to the earth. That is when God is taking out a people for his name from the Gentiles to save them. When what we're reading about happens, when the sign of the Son of Man appears in heaven and the glorious conquering king comes, that is not the day of salvation anymore. The time has passed. That is the day of wrath. And if you have not made the right decision then, it says that you will mourn on that day. And it's not a morning of repentance, it's a morning of defiance. You're, you're weeping, you're wrong, you're defeated in battle, is what it is saying. It is a very serious time, that's why I don't want to make light of it. But it emphasises for us all the more now what our mission is now. This is why we tell people the gospel. This is why it's so important that we live a life being kings and priests for Jesus Christ right now. This is what Revelation is all about. And so he says, so it is to be, amen. It's almost like he just... This is the way God said it's going to happen. That's how it's going to happen. He got it right the first time. It's going to be right the second time. He is the king of history. And then the final verse that we'll look at today. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Like he said at the beginning, you could consider this his divine signature on the prophecy of this book. He is the authority behind it. Now, he's actually making a reference to a passage in Isaiah that talks about God being the first and the last and actually being the God who can declare what is going to happen before it happens, i.e. the God of prophecy. And he does that so that people will know that he is the Lord, that they may turn to him and be saved. And that is why I believe it says you'll be blessed if you study the prophecies of Revelation because you have to take heed. Remember we looked at it in the first study. Heed, hear them, read them, listen to them, obey them understand them. That's what we're getting at here. So in these first eight verses, we've been in the book of Daniel, Isaiah, Zechariah, Psalms, and Matthew. And, and I've been lenient with you. We could have done more. So we're going to do a lot more as we go through. But notice, Jesus Christ is what this book is about. In verse one, he is the source of the revelation. In verse two, he is the channel of the word and testimony of God. His blessings through this revealed word are promised in verse three. In verse four, he gives grace and peace to the church. In verse five, he is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who loves us, cleansed us, and purified our sins with his blood. 
In verse 6, he is the one who makes us kings and priests. In verse 7, he is the promised coming, conquering king who comes in the clouds that every eye will see him with power and great glory. And then in verse 8, he is the almighty one of eternity past and eternity future. And we've only done eight verses so far. You see why this book is called The Unveiling of Jesus Christ. You could not get a more important book in the New Testament. And if it stopped right there, it would be worthy of our study. But like I said, we've only done the first eight verses. I want to just read you one illustration to end. This comes from a a commentary by a man called John Phillips. He wrote an amazing commentary on Revelation. I like this because it's a historical illustration. You know, I love them. He said this, One of the most stirring pages in English history tells of the conquests and crusades of Richard I, the Lionheart. While Richard was away battling Saladin, the kingdom fell on bad times. His sly and graceless brother John usurped all the prerogatives of the king and misruled the realm. Notice the analogies that he's making here. The people of England suffered, longing for the return of the king, and they prayed that it might be soon. And then one day Richard came. He landed in England, marched straight for his throne, and around that glittering coming, many tales and legends have been told in England's history Robin Hood being one of them. John's castle fell. The great Richard laid claim to his throne and none dared to stand in his path. The people shouted their delight. They rang peal after peal on the bells. The lion was back. Long live the king. And then he goes on and he says, one day a greater king than Richard, a greater than all earthly kings have ever seen, will come back and lay claim to a realm greater than England, and those who have abused the earth in his absence, seized his domains, mismanaged his world, will all be swept aside. The king will rule forever. This is the book of Revelation. And the question that you need to ask yourself right now is are you one who loves his appearing, who longs for his appearing, prays for his appearing, or are you one of those who will mourn when he comes? And that's a sobering question. I'm going to leave that with you. Think about it. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.